0: faith and reason podcasts new media for the new evangelization from franciscan university of steubenville find more at faithandreason.com So pleased to share some thoughts with you on the theme of mercy in this wonderful year, this Jubilee year of mercy. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. A commentary on the account of the conversion of Zacchaeus the tax collector inspired the motto of Pope Francis. Miserando adque eligendo. These words are taken from a passage from the historian, the Venerable Bede, who wrote, quote, Jesus therefore sees the tax collector, and since he sees by having mercy and by choosing, he says to him, Follow me. Suggesting mercy is rooted in clarity or spiritual sight. Recalling the original Latin, of Bede's commentary, Francis says that he likes to translate miserando with a gerund that doesn't exist, quote, mercifying. So mercifying and choosing describes the vision of Jesus, who gives the gift of mercy and chooses and takes upon himself. Pope Francis recalls a similar moment in his own life when he experienced the tenderness of God's mercy, following a confession he made at the age of 17. Being touched by the mercy of God, he answered the call to the priesthood and made this motto a program of life. This same program encouraged by his predecessors, a program that calls for the rediscovery of mercy. God's perfect, compassionate, kind, forgiving love, whether one is worthy of it or not. A rediscovery launched by the private revelations of St. Faustina Kowalska, made accessible by Pope John Paul II, who at the beginning of his papacy said, I consider this message of divine mercy my special task. Reconfirmed by Pope Benedict XVI, and celebrated, of course, by Pope Francis. Today, I intend to show how Francis' vision of mercy stands in continuity with his predecessors as I highlight three key features of his program of life. First, an approach that I have considered naming therapeutic jurisprudence an expression coined by two American law professors, David Wexler and Bruce Winnick. Second, an approach that rediscovers or affirms the Marian dimension of what it means to be church, an extension or fruit of using therapeutic jurisprudence as a model for encountering mercy in today's world. Finally, I'll offer a response to Francis' recommendation in his exhortation, Amoris Laetitiae, that human formation should be interdisciplinary, that we should engage other disciplines. This interdisciplinary approach to human formation complements and supports, not supplants, our tradition's understanding of human nature and human behavior making us more merciful in our approach to pastoral care, or as John Paul II desired, making us experts in humanity. These three features stand out for me as key to implementing his program of life, a program that begins with an understanding of salvation as the fruit of mercy. This understanding seeks to reconcile the tension between mercy and justice, hence the expression therapeutic jurisprudence. Various dictionaries define therapeutic as the healing of disease and jurisprudence as skill in law or administration of the law. This new multidisciplinary field of study offers a holistic approach to handling legal cases, taking behavioral sciences into account and the desire to heal victims and perpetrators of crime. In other words, it is an approach that sees mercy and justice leading to healing and restoration of all those hurt by crime. It is justice informed by mercy. This means following and accepting a moral code or the law freely and with love, coupled with understanding the logic of the code leads to spiritual health. It happens, however, that some people will miss the mark due to pride, fear, ignorance, or some vulnerability. Like the prodigal son, they may not trust God's plan for their lives and choose another path due to ignorance, pride, or impatience. Some of these choices create wounds in need of healing, hence for the need for a therapeutic approach to recovery and restoration. Using language like medicine and field hospitals, the healing of wounds is at the heart of Francis's papacy and teaching on mercy. It is precisely our vulnerability that makes us human in need of mercy. In his bowl of indiction declaring the jubilee year of mercy, Francis writes, quote, we need constantly to contemplate this mystery of mercy. It is a wellspring of joy, serenity, and peace. Our salvation depends on it, End quote. He spoke of this truth in Evangelii Gaudium when he affirmed the salvation which God offers us is the work of his mercy. This means our divine health, salus. The possibility of divine restoration and deliverance depends on mercy. Why? Because the opposite of mercy is emotional, spiritual, and sometimes physical exile. If our spiritual health, our salvation, depends on mercy, the opposite, emotional exile, leads to spiritual illness. It appears Francis sees sin more as illness rather than failure. If the fruit of mercy consists of joy, serenity, and peace, The fruit of exile is despair, shame, self-loathing, and isolation. Mercy is, for us, the end of exile. In order to become merciful agents, we must take the time to study and understand the vulnerable in our community. This understanding evokes empathy and leads to action. Vulnerability is derived from the Latin verb vulnerare, meaning to wound. Knowledge regarding our own vulnerabilities keeps us humble and merciful, attending to the vulnerabilities of others who may have been wounded in profound ways. It may be by the grace of God that we were not wounded in utero by drugs or environmental toxins, not abandoned at birth, not traumatized by war, natural disaster or neglect, not born into a family with addictive tendencies. In 1980, John Paul II addressed these difficulties when he wrote, quote, At this difficult, critical phase of the history of the church and world, there is nothing that people need more than divine mercy. He went on to say, quote, The church lives an authentic life when she professes and proclaims mercy, the most stupendous attribute of the Creator and Redeemer. Similarly, Pope Francis, in his bull for the Year of Mercy, speaks of these painful situations in the world today and challenges us to open, quote, our hearts to those living on the outermost fringes of society, fringes modern society itself creates. This is his vision. As an extension of the church's evangelizing mission, creating a culture of accompaniment and healing, a culture that makes the church's teaching on mercy accessible, where people feel welcome to approach and receive God's mercy. Approach like the woman who anointed Jesus, like the man with a withered hand, like Zacchaeus who climbs a tree to see Jesus, and the Samaritan woman at the well. Francis reminds us we are called to heal the wounds of these little ones in, quote, whom Christ himself is present. We can do this when mercy informs our sense of justice. This balance is achieved when therapeutic jurisprudence is exercised, when the desire to heal and rehabilitate accompanies the fulfillment of the law. Pope Francis gives an example of this approach in a conversation with Italian journalist Andrea Tornielli, included in his book, The Name of God is Mercy. Mercy. At one point, Francis mentions the account of the adulterous woman in John's Gospel. In his analysis, he reminds Tornielli, quote, the law stated that she must be punished. Francis goes on to say, Jesus forgives, but there is something more than forgiveness, because Jesus goes beyond the law that demanded stoning, end quote. In other words, Jesus knew the woman's heart, He could see her, including her weaknesses, forgave her and called her to new life, to change her ways, a spiritual work of mercy. No doubt challenging and disturbing those who desired that she be punished. Jesus' approach to this woman and others inspired Francis' program of life. Similarly, this is the Christian program highlighted by Pope Benedict in his encyclical, Deus Caritas Est, in which he declares, quote, the program of Jesus is a heart which sees, end quote. This heart sees where love is needed and acts accordingly. Jesus reveals that mercy calls for correction and conversion, not punishment and vengeance calling us to question any system of thought that includes harm in its understanding or definition of mercy. Jesus demonstrates a therapeutic approach to conversion, healing the disease of sin, offering the restoration of life or salvation. This means all need for forgiveness implies the need for healing. This truth is clearly demonstrated in the healing of the paralytic. Although the need for healing does not imply the need for forgiveness, as was the case with the healing of the blind man, the paralytic needed to hear more than the words, your faith has made you well. He needed to hear, your sins are forgiven. Now get up and walk. The forgiveness inspired the healing of the paralysis, showing forgiveness precedes healing leading to truth and an internalization of the logic of God's plan for us, his divine laws. Repentance and conversion are the fruits of divine justice. But as was the case with the paralytic, some type of encounter with mercy is needed first. Using Jesus as his example, Pope Francis challenges us to go beyond our understanding of justice and inform it with God's mercy. With mercy and forgiveness, he says, quote, God goes beyond justice. He subsumes it and exceeds it in a higher event in which we experience love, which is at the root of true justice. If God limited himself to only justice, he would cease to be God and would instead be like human beings who ask merely that the law be respected. But mere justice is not enough, end quote. This means mercy offers the healing, the therapeutic aspect of care, and justice offers the correction, the juridical aspect of care. Francis reminds us, like Pope Benedict, that God's mercy does not compromise his authority. Similarly, the bishops gathered at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 declared, quote, God is not changed by showing mercy, end quote. God doesn't lose anything. We instead have everything to gain. Mercy does not suggest weakness. This potential outcome inspired John Paul II to say, quote, outside the mercy of God, there is no other source of hope for human beings, End quote. Mercy heals and encourages new beginnings, inspiring hope for others, This means there's no substitute for divine mercy, not even justice on its own. Dr. Alexander Kalomides, an orthodox theologian, in his reflection on Eastern patristic thought on sin and mercy, offers an interesting interpretation of the Greek word diakosuni, translated as justice. He writes, quote, the Greek word diakosuni is a translation of the Hebrew word "sataka. The word means the divine energy which accomplishes man's salvation. It is parallel and almost synonymous with the word hesed, which means mercy, compassion, love, and the word emeth, which means fidelity and truth. This is entirely different from the juridical understanding of justice. This means divine justice is concerned with mercy and healing. Divine justice is housed in what Calamiris calls a hospital of souls. Compare this view to Francis' model of the church, that of a field hospital. He has used this expression in interviews and in official papal teaching. Early on in his papacy, he said, I see clearly... That the thing the church needs the most today is the ability to heal wounds and to warm the hearts of the faithful. It needs nearness, proximity. I see the church as a field hospital after battle. It is useless to ask a seriously injured person if he has high cholesterol or about the level of his blood sugars, exclamation point. You have to heal his wounds. Then we can talk about anything else. Heal the wounds, heal the wounds, and you have to start from the ground up, end quote. In the same interview, he went on to warn against two extremes, a legalistic approach that does not understand the human condition and a lax approach that does not understand or recognize the complexity of sin, one that dismisses the reality of sin. In other words, he's promoting an approach of therapeutic jurisprudence, an understanding of human behavior, and the need for healing due to the consequences of sin. In a recent address to the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family, he emphasized the need for healing, the need for theologians and pastors to, quote, smell of the people and of the street, and to, quote, pour oil and wine on people's wounds. This closeness to people's needs and wounds give people hope. Experiencing the grace of Jesus Christ, a grace, he says, that, quote, can rescue them, give them new courage, and heal them, end quote. He concluded by saying, let us sustain the rescue of the creative plan at all costs. Francis sheds new light on the healing dimension of salvation which is an experience that can begin in this lifetime. It is more than rescue from the eternal fire. When Jesus saved people, in the original Greek, he made them well. Daughter, your faith has saved you, has healed you, has made you well. All people, by virtue of their baptism, are called to participate in this rescue plan, assisting the ministerial priesthood in their care of souls. This rescue plan or program of life, then, must engage the Marian dimension of what it means to be churched. Those baptized Christians who attend to the healing needs of the vulnerable in the community. Like Mary, we are called to follow in the footsteps of her son. Just as the model of therapeutic jurisprudence reconciles the tension between mercy and justice, showing how love and truth are never in opposition, the Marian dimension of the church complements and completes the Petrine dimension of the church, the ministerial priesthood, the leadership in our church, the hierarchy. Not only do these dimensions reflect the collaboration between the priesthood of the baptized and the ministerial priesthood, they reflect the lived reality of being male and female created in the image and likeness of God. Complementarity between the sexes has been affirmed over and over again in official church teaching, most especially in the catechesis of John Paul II, namely the theology of the body. Recently, Pope Francis highlighted this truth when he said, the difference between man and woman is not for opposition or subordination but for communion and creation, always in the image and likeness of God," quote. Several scientists and medical experts, such as Luanne Brizendine, Miriam Grossman, and Daniel Amen, have used their research to support this teaching on complementarity. The fields of anatomy, histology, neurology, and physiology all support these differences in men and women celebrating our strengths and contributions made to a variety of sectors. Pope John Paul II celebrated the achievements of women in his 1988 apostolic letter, Mulheres Dignitatum, in which he said, the church gives thanks for all the manifestations of the feminine genius, which have appeared in the course of history, in the midst of all peoples and nations, she gives thanks for all the charisms which the Holy Spirit distributes to women in the history of the people of God. For all the victories which she owes to their faith, hope, and charity, she gives thanks for all the fruits of feminine holiness, end quote. This feminine genius refers to the special sensitivity shown by women in a variety of settings. Our ability to read character, and vulnerability, and the gift of our gut instinct, or the second brain. In a recent general audience, Pope Francis said, we have not yet understood in depth what things the feminine genius can give us. It is a path that must be crossed with more creativity and more boldness. The Marian dimension of the church includes this feminine genius. Leadership in the church, as we know, is not limited to the ministerial priesthood or the Petrine dimension. This leadership and attention to human need is present in the scriptures. Recall the account of the wedding at Cana. It is Mary that notice, who notices that the wine has run out. And we cannot forget the woman who anoints Jesus, an account that is found in all four Gospels. Luke's account shows how Jesus draws focus to the woman's attention to his need. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss from but the time I came in. She has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil but she has anointed my feet with ointment. This woman's sins were forgiven because she showed great love. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Brizendine Grossman and Amen use their research to show how the female brain is wired to respond to vulnerability and need in the community. Mary and the woman who anoints Jesus demonstrated the feminine genius in action, the Marian dimension of the church, showing mercy and identifying need, inspiring both men and women, who are all called, as Francis says, to be like Mary, quote, who cared for Jesus, who now cares with maternal affection and pain for the wounded of the world a genius celebrated by Pope Benedict, who underscored the maternal mission of Mary, and who, in an interview with Vittorio Messore, challenged Christians to see Mary as a, quote, figure, image, and model of the church, shielding against a solely masculinized model, end quote. He laments the thought of a theology or ecclesiology that no longer has a place for Mary, She is, he says, quote, an example to which every Christian, man and woman, can and should look, end quote. This is why, in the words of John Paul II, no doubt inspired by the ecclesiology of Hans Urs von Balthasar, the Marian dimension of the church, he says, precedes the Petrine. In the words of John Paul II. It is interesting that the private revelations of two women went on to inspire papal teaching on mercy and ecclesiology. Saint Faustina Kowalska, the great apostle of divine mercy in our time, inspired the rediscovery of mercy in the teaching of John Paul II. And Adrian von Speer, a Swiss Catholic physician whose Mariology inspired Balthasar, John Paul II, and Pope Benedict. Pope Francis has sustained this tradition as he stands in continuity with his predecessors as he stresses the Marian dimension in practical ways. It is this Marian dimension, I believe, that will sustain his vision of therapeutic jurisprudence. On November the 1st, 2016, in an in-flight interview, he was asked a question on women's ordination. Not only did he repeat the church's position on the non-admission of women to the ministerial priesthood, but he seized the opportunity to emphasize the gifts of women and the Marian dimension of the church. He said, quote, there is no church without the feminine dimension, how Mary precedes all others. He celebrates the maternal dimension of the church in several documents, declaring Mary being, quote, more important than the bishops. And more recently in Amoris Laetitiae, where he describes a mother who, moved by mercy, approaches and searches for her children. He writes the church is quote, a mother who, while clearly expressing her objective teaching, there's the juridical aspect always does what she can, even if in the process, her shoes get soiled by the mud on the street, end quote. Here, jurisprudence meets the therapeutic approach, encountering the wounded and joins in the struggle and an approach to be considered, of course, by both men and women. Earlier in the same exhortation, he stresses that the world would be dehumanized without a maternal approach to suffering, calling us to witness to God's tenderness. In such difficult situations of need, he writes, the church must be particularly concerned to offer understanding, comfort, acceptance, rather than imposing straightaway a set of rules that only lead people to feel judged and abandoned by the very mother called to show them mercy to emphasize this point he keeps coming back to the account of the adulterous woman and the woman of samaria he highlights jesus's tenderness as he approaches and encounters these women calling them to new life and offering the gift of divine health salvation here the encounter with mercy leads to truth and fulfillment showing how Jesus the way is the way that is love incarnate leads to truth and new life. John Honor in an article on Francis's vision for a Marian church believes Francis offers a practical response to the abstract principles of the Marian and Petrine dimensions of the church. Francis challenges us to give examples of the lived reality of these two principles by encouraging women in leadership, giving them decision-making roles, and by embracing a Marian style of evangelizing, most especially highlighting the maternal dimension of the church. This means love and tenderness can conquer hearts. Francis put it this way, contemplating Mary... We realize that she who praised God for bringing down the mighty from their homes and sending the rich away empty is also the one who brings homely warmth to our pursuit of justice. End quote. Mary's example provides the foundation for how to reconcile mercy and justice. In other words, therapeutic jurisprudence. Just as one can be maternal and Marian without compromising the truth, One can be just and truthful without compromising the call to be merciful. So how can we achieve this balance when it comes to truth and mercy? Perhaps there there continues to be tension in interpreting and analyzing Francis's papacy, Because, although we write about it and talk about it, we haven't quite figured out how to reconcile the two dimensions of the church, the Petrine and the Marian. I tell my students he's processing out loud. They do not stand in opposition. Rather, as John Paul II once noted, the link is profound and Complementary. The Petrine is at the service of the Marian made clear at the foot of the cross, and in Mary's words, do whatever he tells you. First, Mary identifies the need in the community, the feminine genius, brings it to her son's attention, and directs the attendance to Jesus' instruction, trusting in his judgment. Her care and concern informs the decision-making process, Mary directs the Petrine dimension, demonstrating that we must become another Mary before we become another Christ. Doing God's will informs the juridical aspect of the church. Similarly, Pope Benedict once said, quote, the Petrine aspect is included in the Marian aspect. In Mary the Immaculate, we find the essence of the church without distortion. End quote. This means the Petrine dimension is fruitful when it lives out the Marian dimension, when it is like her. What does it mean to be Marian in the world today? Not only does it mean doing God's will, as was the case with Mary's fiat and being a disciple of Christ, Francis believes it involves showing the church's quote, maternal side, her motherly face, to a humanity that is wounded. She does not wait for the wounded to knock on her doors. She looks for them on the streets. She gathers them in. She embraces them. She takes care of them. She makes them feel loved, end quote. Reminds me of a friend of mine after she lost both of her parents. I asked her, what is it you miss the most about your mother? And She said, I miss being known. I miss being known. A Marian church is like the woman in the parable of the lost coin. She searches, finds, and rejoices in the lost being found and saved. Accompanied by the lamp of truth, her love for her people moves her to search for the lost. Soon after my talk, I'll be checking at home to make sure my younger two are in the house. This love, Francis observes, is the primary reason for evangelizing. The new evangelization strives to find those lost in the house. I believe the parable of the lost coin is a parable for the new evangelization. Hearts need to be touched by God's mercy so they can experience the transformation that leads to divine health. A wise person once said, If we can get to people's hearts, their minds and bodies will follow. This, to me, captures what Francis calls the logic of pastoral mercy. Mercy sees with a heart. Ignorance of factors that influence human behavior, however, obscure our spiritual sight and may keep us from showing mercy to others. Keep us from seeing them the way God sees them understanding their prenatal, postnatal, genetic, and cultural experiences. This is why it pleased me, as one who teaches not only systematic but pastoral theology, pleased me to see Pope Francis recommend an interdisciplinary approach to human formation, to this program of life. This time is for him a kairos of mercy, an opportune time, a time for experts in humanity to be agents of God's mercy in the field hospital. The Marian Church with the priesthood of the baptized can staff the field hospital with a variety of gifts, gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit, and training from different disciplines and professions. According to John Paul II, they must see themselves, us, the priesthood of the baptized, as the church bringing our expertise and training to a world, as he put it, at this difficult, critical phase of the history of the church and the world. In 1985, John Paul II said, We need heralds of the gospel who are experts in humanity, who know the depths of the human heart, who can share the joys and hopes and agonies and distress of people today but at the same time, contemplatives who have fallen in love with God. In other words, experts in humanity are people who know the human condition and know how to communicate God's love and mercy. It is interesting that John Paul II put out the call for experts in humanity, not experts in religious education. implying that we must go beyond our limited understanding of human behavior and engage other disciplines. The program of human formation, when rooted in mercy, is character development and self-knowledge, directed by God's love and our ability to reason. Experts in humanity know how to balance justice and mercy because they've taken into account the many factors that limit or prevent the human person from flourishing. They have followed Jesus' command to be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Unfortunately, however, they know the reverse of this beatitude is not always true. Blessed are those who have received mercy, for they will be merciful. Jesus, the original expert in humanity, makes this point in the parable of the unmerciful or unforgiving servant. The servant who receives mercy does not extend it to others. He has forgotten what it feels like to be vulnerable and desperate, focusing instead on self-preservation and vengeance. Francis' motto, in contrast, celebrates the change or conversion that should come when one receives mercy. The hope is that those who receive mercy will be merciful. Mercy challenges us to be patient, generous, kind, self-giving, courageous, and to empathize with those we may have been tempted to consider less worthy of God's forgiving and compassionate love. In order to be capable of mercy, Francis says we need God's assistance because on our own, without his grace, without knowledge into the human condition, We risk being impatient and judgmental. Grace informs our understanding and our ability to reason, making us more merciful. He knows, Francis knows, judgment of people's hearts and accusation are obstacles to God's mercy. Jesus, as Pope Benedict says, sees with a heart and invites us to do the same. Take a closer look at the logo for the year of mercy. Jesus, the good shepherd, carries a wounded man, perhaps one who is lost, abandoned, addicted, imprisoned. Jesus and the man share one eye. Jesus restores his spiritual sight, seeing himself as God sees him. Lord, let me see myself the way you see me. With dignity and love, Jesus knows this man, his history, his pain, his genetic history, prenatal, postnatal history. This man sees Jesus, his love and truth, and Jesus sees him with our eyes so that we can be partakers, as Peter says, in the divine nature, the almond shape of the eye representing the human and the divine. Jesus became one of us, so we can be like him. Without the restoration of spiritual sight, we risk being harsh, focusing instead on self-preservation, operating through a fear-based vision of humanity, one that does not offer hope. This reminds me of Martin Luther King's reflection on the parable of the Good Samaritan found in his speech, I've Been to the Mountaintop. He tells us that in the time of Jesus, the road to Jericho was a dangerous road conducive for ambushing. He believed the Levite, like the priest, did not stop to help the wounded man because he was worried about himself, possibly thinking, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Will I be ambushed? In other words, his fear of being ambushed kept him from clothing the naked and the wounded. Martin Luther King believed Jesus' parable showed how the Good Samaritan reversed the question by asking, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Demonstrating how at times fear and the desire for self-preservation keep us from doing the right thing. This parable and Jesus' own words on the cross Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, should challenge us to examine those factors that may limit a person's ability to reason and know the full consequences of their actions, making them less free to respond to God's will. Jesus would have been aware of the dynamics of group and individual evil, how fear, despair, and pride can seduce people into doing the most despicable of things, possibly keeping them from extending mercy and receiving it. Sharing in Jesus's insight, his spiritual sight into the human condition informs our sense of mercy. Some of the factors we should take time to examine include our family of origin and cultural influences, the culture of fear, and intimidation that seduced people into choosing death, prenatal and postnatal influences, and inherited tendencies. Francis is open to this conversation and shows some awareness of these factors affecting families, recommending the development of more family ministry programs that accompany families, facilitating their healing as the family is, according to him, the nearest hospital shepherding people in mercy. One such factor that influences culture and family is the fear factor. Some people have been raised, as I was, not to generalize about all Italians, but I was born in an Italian family, and I often joke with my friends that I was followed by the Italian paparazzi because my mother, on a regular basis, would say, what are people gonna say, right? So we had to preserve family honor at all costs. So some people raised in the system of living have been exposed to those who would rather support family honor than be there for a family member who is hurting due to a bad decision or a moment of weakness. The end goal is to hide, deny, and shun as a way of dealing with these situations. You can see how this approach encourages people to hide their vulnerabilities, from God and from others. Jesus, when he healed the man with a withered hand, asked him, stretch out your hand, encouraging the vulnerable to approach, to come out of hiding, to receive mercy and healing. The North American community and culture is not exempt from this fear-based thinking. Let's consider the many forced adoptions that took place in Canada between 1945 and 1973. In her research on forced adoptions in Canada, Catherine Blaise Carlson discovered that 350,000 unmarried Canadian mothers were persuaded, coerced, or forced to place their babies for adoption. She concludes that such traumatic separations often sprang from fear of public shame. This fear of shame and judgment, as we know, has inspired other choices regretted by many. For several years, I worked as a Project Rachel counselor in the Diocese of Hamilton in Ontario, Canada. Project Rachel is a ministry of healing and reconciliation for men and women who have suffered due to the pain of abortion. Fear of public shame was at the top of the list when it came to studying the many factors that influenced a young woman's choice to terminate a pregnancy, followed by her fear for her future. Again, we can see how fear of exile can influence one's behavior. Some of this fear-based thinking begins in one's family and culture of origin, challenging us to examine those thoughts and actions that are not life-giving. This fear-based thinking has contributed to a culture of despair and death, revealing that fear is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit it is the opposite of love. Being irrational, it is the opposite of love in action. Rooted in pride and self-preservation, fear, judgment, and accusation can keep us from doing and saying the right thing, forgetting that fear and despair will lead us to do the very things we condemn. Francis recalls a touching encounter with a woman who was abandoned by her husband, left to raise her young children on her own, taking temporary jobs here and there, still struggling to provide. Francis, as her parish priest at the time, remembers a moment when his words affirmed her dignity as a person. It was Christmas, and she brought her children with her to the church to thank the parish staff for the assistance they gave her. He tells it this way. They called me, and I went to greet her. She came to thank me. I thought it was for the package of food from Caritas that, was, that we had sent her. Did you receive it, I asked. Yes, yes, thank you for that too. But I came here today to thank you, because you never stopped calling me Señora. Experiences like this teach you, he says, how important it is to welcome people delicately and not wound their dignity. For her, the fact that the parish priest continued to call her Signora, Lady, he affirmed her dignity, even though he probably knew how she led her life during the months when she could not work, was as important or perhaps even more important than the concrete help we gave her." An expert in humanity would understand the desperation that leads to such choices. Communicating God's mercy and accompanying people so they can choose life-giving actions. Recall the woman at the well, an encounter with Christ's mercy transformed her, satisfied her thirst, giving her new life. How can we better serve those who are wounded, those who may not have received proper human formation in the home? Francis believes we can do better when it comes to marriage prep. I find it interesting when we talk about the two sacraments of service, marriage and holy orders. There's a huge discrepancy when it comes to time and resources we have dedicated to the formation of married couples. The formation process for the two sacraments varies so drastically. Compare the weekend we get as laypeople to prepare for the sacrament of marriage to the five to ten years, let's say, men get in formation for the ministerial priesthood. We have done a great job emphasizing the external curriculum of our faith, catechesis and doctrine. We've not done so well with the internal curriculum. Life skills, forgiveness, managing anger, communication, love. Recent developments in neuroscience are showing that faith is so beneficial to our physiology and our brain health. This lack of preparation for married couples encourages non-life-giving habits learned in one's family of origin to be transmitted to future generations. In Amorous Laetitiae, Pope Francis touches on these issues and calls for more attention to the preparation of married couples, noting the many social, emotional, economic, cultural, and psychological factors they may hurt and damage families and marriages, reminding young couples that the church will accompany them in good times and in bad Moreover, he urges us to be mindful of the unique needs of widowed, separated, divorced Catholics and those in what he calls reconstituted families. How do we accompany and encourage these individuals who are grieving the loss of a relationship? Those who may have been abandoned, those who may have been abused, those who desire to reconcile but found themselves alone and rejected. How do we facilitate an encounter with Christ's mercy and healing love? Do the prayers of the faithful reflect this reality? Have we prayed for separated and divorced Catholics when we gather to worship? Think about the time you're given when you grieve the loss of a loved one, maybe three days off work, maybe a week, your community's praying for you, child misses school because of the loss of a loved one. We pray as we should, I've known people after separation and divorce, they're at work the next day. That kid is in the classroom the next day. Brought my young daughter to a dance about a month ago. Saw a little guy come out of the washroom, white as a ghost. I said, are you okay? Are you sick? He said, I just found out my dad walked out on us. How are we healing the wounds of these little ones? Fortunately, many dioceses offer support programs and resources for people in these situations. In Canada, we have New Beginnings, a wonderful ministry. But we can do better when it comes to promoting awareness of the lived reality of family life and preparation for marriage. We give them a weekend, but then we judge them when their marriage fails. We need an equivalent of Sarah International. Here's an idea, what about creating and promoting Monica International, named after Saint Monica, mother of Saint Augustine. As a community of believers, Monicans would make it their mission to pray for families, working with dioceses and offices for family life to prepare and promote courses and resources to assist young people who are discerning marriage, visiting high school classrooms, facilitating come and see weekends with families willing to adopt young discerners, hosting discernment seminars, including testimonies from married couples who have seen it all, sharing their vocation stories, giving spiritual support, and working with Monica chaplains who would offer regular masses for the preparation and protection of marriage. We know we're all called to holiness regardless of our state of life. Unfortunately, some some limit their understanding of the call to holiness to a particular state or the chosen few. How can we inspire the desire for holiness in marriage and family life? How can we seize the opportunity to be preventative, forming people for marriage and parenting, and assisting couples that are facilitators of marriage prep? Francis recommends expanded marriage preparation courses. The existing courses could be extended to include some of the research on family of origin issues, unhealthy habits associated with conflict management, that show how unresolved past hurts can harm a relationship. We should include some of the fascinating research of Sarah Hill, Daniel Del Priori and Bruce Ellis on fathers and daughters, how a daughter's exposure to a loving nurturing father can slow down her reproductive journey and prevent sexual at-risk behavior educating people starting from the adolescent years on the various factors that may keep them from knowing God's plan for them and knowing God's plan for them and their flourishing is a must research on the developing adolescent brain shows how a teen's neurobiology may keep them from reasoning properly and assessing consequence Neuroscientist Jay Geed and other researchers have studied the risks associating with the developing adolescent brain and have reported that accidents are the number one cause of adolescent mortality followed by suicide and homicide. Car insurance brokers are aware of this research on the teenage brain and use it to set higher insurance rates for young men. Rates are higher for men because it takes longer for their brains to develop making them vulnerable to risky behavior. The science of sex is another topic in need of exploration and sharing. The research of Dr. Daniel Amen, a psychiatrist and brain disorder specialist, shows how bonding hormones are released during sexual intimacy. How our brain chemistry changes when we are infatuated and falling in love. How this can diminish our ability to reason and how outside of marriage this can lead to bonding to the wrong person for an indefinite period of time, putting people at risk for pain, disappointment, and regret. The good news is we can use this research to defend the Church's teaching on sexuality and marriage. This education must also include awareness of the good prenatal, of good prenatal health for mothers and fathers, especially for those discerning and desiring the vocation of marriage. Research research shows that maternal and paternal prenatal health care, or lack thereof, can affect a person's physiological and psychological development. Although it is beyond the scope of this presentation to address all defects and disabilities that are beyond our control and understanding, we can address a few factors that can be controlled. Studies on prenatal development and health show that exposure of a fetus to environmental toxins, including alcohol, prescription drug medication, street drugs, and pesticides, can cause neurological damage, slow down or prevent the formation of conscience, and cause learning disabilities or physical defects. And the men here in the room, you're not off the hook either. People used to think that it was only the mother's prenatal habits that influenced the health of her unborn child. Today, research shows that sperm health, like a mother's prenatal health, contributes to the overall well-being of a fetus. Studies done over the past two years have shown the link between exposure to toxins and defective sperm, a project coordinated by researchers at the University of South Florida includes peer-reviewed medical journal articles showing the connection between men who have experienced environmental chemical exposure and increased learning disabilities and other intellectual and functional defects and hyperactivity in children. So this shows that the fetal health depends a great deal on the health of the mother, the father, and our environment. We should also note the importance of knowing how postnatal care affects a child. How a child who is not loved, nourished, and and touched, especially in the first three years of life, some researchers refer to this first three years of life as the fourth trimester. How if they are not loved and touched, by a consistent caregiver, they are neglected and abused, again, can slow down the formation of conscience, making them less free to respond to God's will for their lives, less free to reason, can lead to hyperactivity and other difficulties. Harsh criticism can, ha- can harm a child's physiology, leading to poor self-control. According to Dr. Gabor Mate and Dr. Bill Webster, harsh criticism can harm a child's physiology and weaken his or her immunity. Some people might be set up to be less free to respond to God's will due to intergenerational trauma. This means genetic inheritance is an important factor to consider when it comes to knowing oneself and others. Dr. Gabor Mate is a Canadian physician who specializes in neurology, psychiatry, and psychology, as well as the treatment of addiction. He and others have studied the interaction between the emotional environment and a person's physiology. This research reveals that genes are turned on or off by the environment. For this reason, the greatest influence on human development, Mate says, health and behavior are those of the nurturing environment. So the field of epigenetics examines this process and change in gene function. These changes in physiology can be passed on to future generations, inspiring a wealth of research on family trees and intergenerational trauma. As we can see, there are so many factors we should consider when it comes to understanding human behavior. Knowledge and love pave the way for merciful behavior and add some clarity to the complexity of human existence. Instructing individuals is a spiritual work of mercy. This knowledge reveals the fragility of human existence, inspiring Pope Francis to say, why them and not me? During the Jubilee Mass for prisoners on November the 6th. He understands that under the same circumstances, we too could be in prison awaiting God's mercy and pondering the factors that may have contributed to our actions, knowing the penal system measures repentance in years, not in conversion and remorse, waiting to encounter God's grace and mercy so we can be made well. Jesus taught, be merciful as your father is merciful. A culture of mercy accompanies not isolating those who need to approach and to be touched by love, a love that heals and inspires conversion. Mercy means understanding correction as healing, experiencing an encounter that gives spiritual sight. Sadly for some, shame will keep them from approaching God, having convinced themselves they have lost God's love due to some past mistake, possibly due to fear, making them feel unworthy of God's mercy a mercy referred to by Pope Francis as our spiritual medicine. Imaging God as merciful Abba heals these wounds, some due to deficits in the parent-child relationship, revealing a God who searches, runs to meet, accompanies, loves, reminding us, as St. Paul says, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Of this truth, Pope Benedict once proclaimed, mercy is, in reality, the core of the gospel message. It is the name of God himself. It is thoughts of unworthiness, however, that keep us from knowing God's mercy, that keep people from approaching and coming out of exile. Pope Francis's vision for the church includes this plan to mercify the world, heal our image of God, a plan that has a therapeutic or Marian dimension that accompanies the juridical or Petrine dimension. This rediscovery of mercy or recovery of mercy, is a rediscovery and recovery of the Marian dimension, an approach that attends vulnerability in people, assesses and addresses human need, attends to the multidisciplinary study of human behavior, and shows how and why people respond to the juridical dimension the way they do. Last slide. (laughs) After all, it is Mary who holds the wounded body of Christ, The Marian tells the Petrine why people act the way they do, diagnoses them, and leads them to Jesus for healing so they can embrace the logic of the juridical dimension, knowing its truth will keep them spiritually healthy and safe. The Marian dimension is just as integral to the rescue plan, the program of life, as the Petrine dimension. Jesus, the good shepherd, models this balance between the two dimensions. First, people encounter his love. They embrace his truth second. Love leads to the truth, just as the Marian precedes the Petrine. Rooted in Jesus' desire to heal us and fulfill the law, the program reminds us that Jesus heals his people through his body, us, in mercy, and truth, the Marian and the Petrine, inspiring our gifts and disciplines so we can co-staff the field hospital, restoring God's people to divine health, this is why I believe the, po- the vision of this, I believe, is the vision of Pope Francis, his program of life, one who has received mercy. There is a wideness in the ocean of God's mercy. We are in the hour of mercy, so to conclude, just a couple more seconds, I would like to read uh, from a poem given to me by a man who heard me speak on mercy And I was so happy to receive it. So, in this hour of mercy, just indulge me for a few more seconds as I read a few words from this beautiful poem. You have heard my sobs arising from the separateness of ourselves. You have come with ointment to bind up these wounds, but I'm no longer here. The tomb is empty. You sat with me in the crucible of our suffering, you held me in the pain of excruciating division, you listened with an open heart. You said, I am with you. The balm of that presence has been enough. The night of sin is over. The spark of your life has ignited our embers, and the tombs are being pried open one by one. For the sake of your sorrowful passion, have mercy on us. Thank you faith and reason podcasts new media for the new evangelization from franciscan university of steubenville find more at faithandreason.com